Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Doc Flitz. All right, the marquee has been repaired and fixed and updated. We're ready to go. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is back. What's going on? I'm Joel Hoover. What happened to the marquee other than Rick and Nick's name are still on it? Yet to do a show. I think what happened was it needed updating was really what it was. These guys. These guys. I ran into Nick at the water carnival. You this, did? I did. Unreal. Asked him when he was going to do his next show, and then he uh, 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 he got a big case of the fumble bumble, so... Uh, <laughs> Apparently, yeah. he's, apparently he burned his thumbs with fireworks or something because I can't make it in. So here de- we are. What is the deal with these guys? Seriously. Don't even care. Yeah, I don't really care anymore. I'm I'm focused on the work that we've got to do because we've kind of taken over this podcast. So again, we updated the marquee. We've got this thing shuffling along. And so here we are. And we're excited to be here. It's Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. We're going to talk a pretty great topic today. In regards to the movies, but before that, we want to tell you that Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, and we are pleased to have them on as a sponsor. Don't forget about their $5 movie nights on Tuesdays that they have. You can go, you can see a film for 5 bucks. Great, great deal that they've got. They've got some food deals that go on that night as well. So, great time to go see a movie there. Really, any time is a great time to go see a movie at the Bemidji Theater. They've got... All the current stuff in there, or just about all of the current stuff in there, and it's a great place to go catch a film. Don't forget, you can also bring the kids every Wednesday, 10 a.m., $2 tickets. They have a special kids movie on those Wednesday mornings all summer long, so make sure that you bring them in for that. With $2 per ticket for grown adults and kids alike, can't go wrong, and they're guaranteed hits. Kids will love it. So that they've got some good options that are in anyway. Plus, by the way... Um, good kids movies that are in in theaters right now that are current, which we'll tell you about in a moment. Okay. But I do also want to say that if if you shop at our Big Deals online store, which you can you can also access by going to paulbunningbroadcasting.com In addition to accessing this podcast, if you go to our Big Deals online store, there are nine dollar movie passes to the Bemidji Theater in there for seven dollars. If you'd like to stock up on a few of those, now you can't use them. For about two weeks, with some current movies that that come out, they've they've got to make their profit at the box office. Well, it's, it's in the actually, initial run. It's actually not Bemidji Theaters that's that. That's like the movie companies, the studios will not permit right. passes for the first two weeks for some of the new releases. So keep that in mind. Yes, there are some exceptions, but once the movie's been out a while, go see the new Star Star Wars movie, Young Solo. That's been out enough time that they'll take passes. So right there, you go. But if you need to be there for the big movie opening night, pass probably won't be the way to do it. Correct. We've got a big topic for today. It's a yeah. general one. It's a throwback one. It, it should be fun to dig into. Throwback but, of throwbacks. Yes, but first we do want to talk about what's been happening in theaters since Dave and I last got to record an episode of this, which was actually, we usually do every other week. It's been about a three-week break since we last did one, so a lot's happened in that time. Uh, first of all, let's let's go all the way back, kind of as far back as we can go, Um 
since we last did one. I want to talk about quick about some of the movies that have come in that time, and I want to start with Ocean's Eight, which I did get a chance to go see. I'm and not yet. You have. I heard it was pretty okay. good. So don't spoil it. Yes, caveat. There will be an occasional spoiler here and there within today's episode. Maybe not as much as in other weeks, but we may have a spoiler alert or two in there. So if you feel a spoiler coming on, if your spoiler sense starts tingling, uh, you can pause the episode, you can mute it, you can go la, 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 whatever you need to do. But there will occasionally be a spoiler or two in there. Yeah, spoiler sense. Well, I think if you've seen any of the Ocean's movies... um move forward so i wouldn't mention like any potential cameos i've heard rumored for the oceans eight that you would know about that i've heard about uh we'll leave it at that i'll leave it at that too um, yeah but yeah it's, it sounds good it's got good reviews and that's a good thing i like that particularly one thing i was happy to see in the wake of a few years ago with the ghostbusters reboot i'm happy that the oceans reboot didn't get the backlash that the gals got with ghostbusters that was just sickening truthfully Right. This is. I'm happier to see that we're just moving forward. It seems to be that way. Good. Yes. And and by the way, Ocean's Eight had a great open, best open ever in the Ocean series. That's true. Yep. It and it just it edged out the others by a little bit. I mean, the the series has been remarkably consistent in terms of its opening weekend. Eleven opened at about thirty eight million. Twelve opened at thirty nine million. Thirteen opened at thirty six million. Eight open at 41 million, 41.6 million. So, really good open. As far as the total gross to this point, um, it's it's behind the other, it's behind 12 and 11, um, but it has edged 13. Uh, actually, let me check that. Now, isn't 13 um, it, it, the only one that came out in the summer other than eight? Because eight came out in late June, but I think Ocean's 13, didn't that come out in like Memorial Day somewhere in there, summer? About that time. 11 yeah. and 12 both came out November, December ish. So they were yes. both fall movies. So the box office is a little different for one. But even that, even regardless of that, it's just something to pay note to. Right. It, the fact that it came out as strong as it did. It's 24-day total, by the way. I do need to correct myself. Has beaten 12. I'm not sure if it's beaten the others. But as far as total gross, it's closing in on on topping 13. It should surpass 13 here in the um, in the near future, and then 12 will be definitely in range. I don't know if it'll beat 11. 11 is the top one yeah, at the box one. office out of all of them with $183 million, uh, which coincidentally just about edges out the money that they stole in that <laughs> movie, so which was $160 million. So, so anyway, and as far as how the movie was, it was good. I I, I feel like, yeah, the, the Ghostbusters one... Um, Yes, it it brought a lot of undeserved backlash with what it did, but I didn't really like the movie very but, but, much. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but it didn't deserve the backlash that it got, period. Re, yeah, the, whether the movie was good or the movie wasn't good, the movie got backlash before the movie even had a chance to be seen. Right. And so there's the difference. I mean, if they had a great movie and people were hating it, and I thought the Ghostbusters movie was, it was okay. It wasn't special. It really wasn't. You had a lot of great talent, but the cake only rose so much. Right. I can't comment on Ocean's 8 because I haven't seen it, but it sounds like it was pretty good. Well, yes. I, I would say it was good. And here's here's where I slot it in relation to the others. I would put it a solid third place. And that it is a very solid third place because I loved Eleven. I think Eleven was a, a terrific reboot of the, the classic Rat Pack Ocean's Eleven. Thirteen thought, was really good. I thought Thirteen was fun. It, it brought was, it, it back. It was just fun. It brought it back after Twelve, which was which was a, a letdown. Let Eight slots in as a very, very solid third because 
And not uh, a distant third. No, definitely not. It was a solid third. I'd say I'd put it in the B minus range, okay. kind of a, of how it was. I thought it was good. I thought it had a lot of charisma in its cast. I thought it was slick, just like the other ones. The other ones at their best are just slick. They are super slick caper films with people who are very good at being entertaining. At their worst, they're at their slick. I mean, there's right. there's no downside exactly. with eleven or thirteen. They're great movies. Just the style alone, even if the movie's on in the background you can't hear it, it looks good. And I thought 8 found its own footing in that regard. It it kind of, it it stayed attached to its predecessors in its own ways, and yet it shook off its predecessors in its own ways with a different kind of heist, a different kind of job, different kind of people, fewer people, so you could get into their backstories a little bit more. So that was pretty neat. And yet, it felt too perfect. The job that they did felt too perfect. Perfect. Even with the other movies, there were different points along the way where you felt, hey, maybe this House of Cards is going to come crumbling down. I never felt like the House of Cards was going to come crumbling down in Ocean's 8. I never did. They never had to pull their own version of a cartwheel, it felt like. It just all went too perfectly, it seemed like. And I never felt that it was in any real danger. Well, one other thing with the box office this summer worth looking at is comparing two different movies of big franchises. You had the young Han Solo movie, Star Wars. You had Jurassic World. Both of them come out fairly close to one another. And Star Wars getting pretty decent reviews. Jurassic World not getting all the best reviews. However, Jurassic World now, uh, it just had its second weekend at the box office and is still number one despite eh, reviews. While Star Wars, with much better reviews, has really seriously underperformed and there's a little more we'll talk about with star wars but let's talk a little bit more about we talked we touched on it real brief so we don't on the last episodes we don't need to really delve into franchise fatigue versus reviews and people going to see it right you know if, if you're going into jurassic world and you know the reviews are eh, maybe you just i want to see dinosaurs i don't care how the movie is i kind of want to see dinosaurs chase people okay and yet the sense that people are giving at the box office and critically is that they need to come up with a new idea or something that's a little bit more unique with the the Jurassic concept or maybe it's time just to say goodbye to it. Well, and this one is Jurassic World or Jurassic World 2 number 5. There are plans for number 6. This Jurassic World thing is is designed to be a trilogy apparently. Right. So they are coming up with a Jurassic World 3 or Jurassic 6 or whatever you want to call it. So what do you think the fallback from this one is going to be going forward into the next Jurassic entry? They need to come up with better ways than just find ways to get dumb people in front of dinosaurs on the island and, okay, survive. Maybe we need to come up with that for a future episode of, okay, here's where they stand. They've, they've got another movie that's in the queue. What would you do to try to add and inject a little bit of life? into it because right now their 10 day total according to box office mojo is at 264.7 million compared to the 10 day total from the first jurassic world that was 402.8 million i mean the excitement was real for the fact that the jurassic movies were coming back and that the park is open well now the park is gone and so are the fans by comparison to the to that last movie but then you get star wars the, the reviews are good but it does come out six months after Episode Eight, The Last Jedi, and it right. sounds like people are just kind of, uh, another six months, another Star Wars, and it shouldn't be like that. Right, because, I mean, they just crossed the 200 million mark. That's how low it is. And you compare it to Rogue One, which Box Office Mojo did, they were at 512 million by this 38-day mark. 
Solo is only at two hundred seven million. So, and that's still big pretty difference. big, high numbers. But I mean, Star Wars is a whole different beast. It's like having Babe Ruth come out and hit the ball. Yeah, he's only hitting two hundred though. It's Babe Ruth. Come on, he ought to be swatting that right. thing. Star Wars is losing its swing a little bit. It's not necessarily well. That's the other question. How many people left Episode Eight, The Last Jedi, a little norked? And now they're moving forward and to see another movie that they're not so thrilled about anymore. Well, what did we learn with Solo? We learned that you need to give a little bit of a break. If you want people to come back again, give them a little bit of a break. How about giving them a decade-plus break? That's what Incredibles 2 did, where they came back into the fold. A very popular movie when it came out back at its time in the 2000s, where... Pixar was just rolling at that point. I'd say Pixar hit a little bit of a dip in form for a a period, but Incredibles 2 has come back, and not only has it just smashed it out of the park at the box office, the the highest animated opening ever. And you got to compare that against other Pixar movies like Toy Story and many others. That amazes me. I was like, do we need an Incredibles 2? Yes. But apparently Apparently. we do. And And it did great at the box office. And great critically as well. It I would really like to see, nailed it. I want to see Pixar and Disney move forward with something that's not a sequel or a spinoff. Let's get original. They did it with The Incredibles the first time, and they knocked it out of the park. And they've done it with a couple things. Now they're retreading old ideas, which when done well, like Incredibles 2, that's great. Let's keep doing things original. Get in a sequel every so often. But every movie... Cars 2, so on and so forth. Let's just do something original. But right. back to Star Wars real, real quick before we get into our main topic for the day. So now all this, these plans for what are coming forward. A year and a half from now is when the next one's coming out, Episode 9, um, where we'll finish out the Skywalker saga. Um, but there's also talk about a whole new trilogy of films that will not have anything to do with anything we've seen so far. A couple other young movies, old young Obi-Wan, young Boba Fett, young Yoda, all of these have been talked about. Um, now they're not necessarily, there's a lot of different talk about what they're going to do. Maybe they're going to hold them off or they're going to cancel them. I, and there's other rumors saying that's not true at all. They're just going to kind of re-examine their position and what they've got because young Solo has not exactly overwhelmed. Plus, have you heard on the internet that somebody is trying to crowdfund a remake of The Last Jedi? (laughs) Mm, They want to re-edit it and maybe do some reshooting. And the funny thing is, you know, even the director of The Last Jedi got on, Rain Johnson. Oh, yeah. Oh, please, please, I hope you remake. Yes, please. Guys and gals. Enough. Take a collective breath. You're not always going to be pleased with everything. RoboCop was an awesome movie, the original. The sequel, uh, have I flipped out about some sort of a remake or the reboot of RoboCop? Just take a breath. Listen, we had problems with The Last Jedi, but I don't think you need to go and do an insane reboot of the entire movie itself and and try to remake it. I I think that's just absurd. I, I mean... Our, You're just not going to get everything that you want. You and I, I mean, our biggest problem with The Last Jedi was just some of the plot devices. If Luke died at the end of it, spoiler, we did mention they were spoilers, um, then he did. And they had a throwaway line that said why he might die and then it happened. But if you weren't paying attention, you might not have caught it. And even if you did, you're like, really? Really? Um, whether you were happy that he was a grumpy guy. My, our biggest issues were the whole slow speed chase. What? What? They can't. Just quick hyperspace for a nanosecond and catch right up to him and blow him out of the stars? 
Really? Plus Leia really? and space. Plus Leia and space. That was silly. It, 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 you know, they were part, and they were part of storylines of you know Poe's character and Finn's character that really went all the way around to right back where they started. It was a waste of time. Casino planet. Yeah, the casino planet. It was it was pointless. Rose's character basically being a nothing character. Enforcing yeah. the romance at the end with a kiss. It was the most passionless. Even my wife saw that movie. Like, really? That's all they have to do for a kiss? And she's not a Star Wars fan. It was it was forced like Padme and Anakin. So there were issues with that movie. But oh boy. let's not completely flip out. That let's remake a movie that's six months old. You get your action figures out. You can do whatever you want in your living room, and you know you can borrow some of mine. Not, but let's relax. All right. With that in uh, mind, let's, let's leave it forward. behind and let's move forward. Let's go forward by going way back. Exactly. That was essentially what I was about to say. Sorry. Well done. So that no, that was perfect. I'll you, take back what I just said. You do your segue. You, you cued it up, man. <laughs> that was outstanding. So thank you. Um, today we are going to talk classic Hollywood, and by classic Hollywood, the golden I want, age. Exa- exactly. I want to discuss the the phrase that we hear so often: the golden age of Hollywood. What was it? What did it mean? And maybe what were some of the reasons why? People viewed it as being a golden age, which is where I would like to to dig into today. First of all, but not only that. Remember, this is a, an age that a lot of younger, let's say, thirty and younger, forty and younger, don't really delve all that into because right. a lot of them are black and white. A lot the way movies were made then compared to the way they're made now, very very different. Even on the back end of the golden age of Hollywood, there are a lot of movies that people sure. have not seen. I I love showing people movies from that time period. And showing them something a little different. And you have to give the caveat that you have to step back into the shoes of people who were seeing it in that day to really appreciate what these movies were. In the, and era, meant. In the era of CGI and jump cuts and, frenet- and frantic editing, you're not going to see them like that. But right. that's not to say there aren't things to really appreciate and love for those movies if you at least give them a chance. Black and white, be damned. You know, there's a lot to like. Right. Or even the color ones. I do want to start by giving a shout out to the the YouTube channel Crash Course because I, I watched a great video uh, that Crash Course did regarding um, the golden age of Hollywood and the the different components to it. Dave, if you had to put a a date period on the golden age of Hollywood, what would you guess would be about that period? Honestly, it goes into the '60s, I would say, because you still have yes. the studio system. It was over by the 70s, so I'm just going to say mid-60s, give or take. You'd be just about on the money. Uh, it's either 63 or 64, depending on who you read from or or yeah, what you say. Right. I would say, I would even stretch it into the late 60s and say that there were still pieces of the golden age of Hollywood and its components that endured pieces, into the late 60s. Pieces, yeah, but to look at a lot of the movies from the mid-60s, I mean, by the time you got into the 70s, the movies were kind of, I don't want to say they were in a depression or a funk, because they weren't. There's some fantastic movies that came out in the 70s, but they were kind of draw. The musicals weren't completely done. You had Fiddler in the Roof that was a component, and that came out in the early right. 70s. But you can't really, you can call it a, a noir of the sec, of the golden age of Hollywood. The stars endured, though. Yeah. The stars endured and carried over that that shining quality of the golden age of Hollywood into some of the movies that came then in the 60s and then even the early 70s. But but about that point, it had, it had kind of reached its demise, which we'll talk about why a little bit later. When would you say that the golden age began? Uh, 40s at some point, I would say. 
Oh yeah. Uh, I I, re- I really couldn't say. Um, I got to say somewhere around even around World War II because some of the biggest stars that Holly that people were so enamored with, a lot of them went off to war, and some of them didn't come back. Many attribute the beginning of the golden age of Hollywood to the early teens or mid-teens, 1915, 1917, and about that range. One place I was reading from from attributed it to about the time when when Birth of a Nation was released, about that time, um, or All Quiet on the Western Front in around that time. They attribute it to around then some of the, the epic, classic, silent films of the day really helped get that up and running. Why would movies we... were so new then? I mean, you'd have to be you know enamored with them because it was a brand new thing. Movies prior to then, there were no such thing, right? And a lot of them didn't have sound unless you had a guy in the theater playing a piano or something. Well, that's just it, and this is where we would begin in terms of what made the golden age the golden age. And I would say first, it was the fact that there was that transition between the silent films of the the teens and the twenties into the talkies in the late 20s and the the early 30s, beginning with the jazz singer, with that being the very first talkie. And then talkies suddenly became all the rage. I mean, you watch Singing in the Rain, and you see what that was like in in a very comical way. But that is basically what happened, is that studios suddenly were in an arms race to begin getting talkies and begin developing their content in in such a way that was different than they had ever done before with the silent films of the era. Suddenly, they had to really leap forward. And going to sound was the beginning. If if actually having films was, was its own milestone, talkies and making that transition from silent to sound was maybe the next major leap forward that came and that came of course late 20s early 30s and really helped kick the golden age of hollywood into full gear but also think about this imagine you're back in that day now 100 years ago you got shows on stage you got plays and musicals and things on stage why am i going to pay to go see something on such a screen right and go see this there are things as we know that you can do on screen with some movie and camera tricks that you can't do on stage. And if you, how many times have you found yourself watching a movie and you're just in awe of what you saw? How the heck did they do that? And not only that, just the way that the camera moves. It can bring you into a story rather than just sit there from your fixed seat in the house and just watch people move around on the stage. There's no zooms, no pans, no anything. It's just there. You're very limited as to what you can do tricks-wise on stage. Not to say they don't have tricks. They certainly do. But it's not the same. So here's a whole new medium that people were somewhat skeptical about but also very curious about. And not only were they enamored with just the process, it pulled them in like things that are live on stage just can't do. We still have a thriving Broadway, but it's arguably not the draw live theater is that saying something really profound on the big screen is exactly but that's an opinion but once the sound component came into the picture changed everything it really did change everything that's that's exactly right they because then the suddenly these big production companies were just were just starting to rake in the dollars with how well they were doing at that time and when you think about it with the with the big production companies they there were there were several that that had a real a real hold on things at that time. You you had you had kind of your your big production companies, and then you had a couple that were that were kind of a little bit under the radar. MGM, Metro yeah. and Golden Goldwyn Mayer, was the the really big one 
um, to begin the day. I mean, they, they were at the top. Paramount was very big as well. Warner Brothers, RKO, as well as um, Fox and, and what they were doing. And then Universal, Columbia Pictures, United Artists, they were they were kind of the little on ones. The peripheral. Came, right. But the, the built in. They on the periphery, and the reason was that those those big five that I mentioned there off the start, they owned theaters. They owned their own theater chains, and that's how they were able to release their movies in the manner that they did. Which doesn't that seem like a crazy concept now? That the the production companies owned the, the studios owned the theaters, and, and they was, had a monopoly. Then, as a result, depending on where you were, you could only see certain, certain movies. movies at certain theaters. And not only that, they had the exclusivity deals with the stars. So it'd be like exactly. Let's use today's stars for example. Let's say that Jennifer Lawrence could only appear with, say, Warner Brothers. Every movie she'd ever do was a Warner Brothers movie. That's it. Well, what if there was another star that she'd be a great team-up with? Well, he was exclusive to Paramount. They weren't going to come together. Now, there were exceptions where they would, you know, but one company had to loan them out in exchange for something else. Those days are gone. They're just gone. I think the the very last holdovers disappeared maybe in the the 90s, maybe. You know, Kevin Costner had a big Warner Brothers thing for a while, but that might have just been a nice deal. But he showed up with a lot of other things, too. Yeah, but having the stars, having the theaters, having them all contractually obligated. The studios ran all of it. Exactly. Whether it was MGM, Paramount, Warner Brothers, RKO, 20th Century Fox, whoever it was, they had that kind of monopoly. Plus, each one kind of had their own genres that they really stuck to as well. And you you can kind of see that in the in the 30s and 40s with the kind of movies that they that they put out and the way that they ran with it. Some of them were a little bit more um, a little bit more grassroots with the kind of movies they did. Others were a little bit bigger. Others were a little bit more musical with what they did. And it was interesting watching where a lot of the stars came from. I mean, when movies were brand new, a lot of these stars were coming from the screen. A lot of them were coming from a lot of big theater areas, whether it was Broadway or whether it was London. You look at guys like Sir Lawrence Olivier. I mean, he had a huge stage background. He's one of the greatest stage actors of all time. Yes. But not all of them translated great onto the big screen. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. Olivier clearly did. And uh, it was interesting to see that large dynamic. Vivian Lee was another Vivian one. Vivian Lee was another great one. But imagine... Now you start to get your first true movie stars that they weren't really big on stage. Maybe they got their acting beginnings on stage, but they were unknown until they would show up on the big screen. Things like Marilyn Monroe or Norma Jean Baker, if you prefer. Uh, she was the first, I mean, I the first, but she was one of the big notable first movie stars that didn't have a theater background, really. She kind of debuted larger than life on screen. I'm kind of relieved, though. That the that the hold that the theater that the studios had over theaters yeah. was broken because I think that really opened the door for a much. I know that that was probably tougher at the time because that was just that was all they knew was holding on to the theaters like that. But it allowed for a wider audience to be reached once that once that hold was broken once that they were found to be in violation of the antitrust laws with with the kind of setup that they had in that regard. Finally, there, there was a break, but it allowed for a more widespread viewing experience to be able to happen. To give you, and since you're, we're all big sports fans, we'll give you an analogy here in the 21st century. Baseball, or any sport, with the all-star game. It used to be that you, we, the Twins just played at Wrigley Field, a horrible series at Wrigley Field. 
Twins fans never get to see Wrigley Field. And back in the day, they never got to see Wrigley Field unless they played in the World Series at Wrigley Field. You never got to see National League stars if you were an American League team. There was limited TV. There was no internet. Right. You were extremely limited to what you see. So what if the All-Star game, like in 1965, did come to Minnesota? Now you get to see a lot of American League stars that are coming to your team anyway, but now you also get to see a lot of the great stars in the National League that you've heard about or read about and maybe rarely been able to see. This was the way to do it. Nowadays, with coverage that you have, some people have said the All-Star game is antiquated because everyone knows who everybody is. That's kind of the way it was with theaters. You might have heard about a great Gone with the Wind or whatever, but maybe that theater company didn't own a theater in your town, so you didn't have the option to see Gone with the Wind unless you drove however far away to go see it at a theater that would show it. Exactly. So studios were hitting it big each doing their individual thing and, of course, with their individual theaters. Um, and then with the advent of the talkies, that was a big a big point. What came next, though, was very colorful. Before we get to that, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. It's a great place to go catch a film right here in town, located just across from the airport on Highway 2. It's the Bemidji Theater. Don't forget about their $5 movie nights that they do on Tuesdays. So the next big step forward came color films. Color films were huge. I mean, I mean, you go from the black and whites with with the silent films and then the talkies into the 30s. By the time you get to the late 30s and into the 40s, suddenly the surface is starting to be scratched by big-time movies in terms of what color can do and technicolor. And once they started doing the, the different things that they did with film and with the film negatives, to be able to get them to be in, in color, which if you want the details on that, I, I would recommend watching the, the Crash Course video on the Golden Age of Hollywood. It's Crash, Crash Course Film History number 11. Um, it's on YouTube. Really, really good details in terms of what happened to allow for color to be possible with movies and what was done with in terms of shooting and in terms of what they did with the film to be able to make that possible because... Look at the immense success of some of the movies that that started to bring color into the picture. The Adventures of Robin Hood was one of the the really, really big original ones for color. I mean, you've got Errol Flynn as Robin Hood swashbuckling his way across the screen, and then Olivia de Havilland as um, as Maid Marian, and then all the other characters who come along with. I mean, those two were just magnetic anyway when you put them together. And yet, it was that much more... Wonderful and exciting to watch when you put that movie into color. I mean, that was a great movie to have in color. And then there were more that follow. I mean, you had you had Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Pinocchio. You had um, you had Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, with a really wonderful use of both black and white, or that that kind of noir start, the Kansas colorless scenes, yeah, in can with the Kansas portion. Um, and then you go into bright, the, the vivid, yellow brick road. Extremely vivid. Green witches, flying monkeys. And all of it in Oz. I mean, that was superbly done. And it was a, just beginning to show what could be possible with color being in films. And keep this in mind as well. Television at this point was in its infancy. And while movies for a long time were black and white, TV stayed black and white for much, much longer. It wasn't until you got to... I think it was the early 60s when color TV started to become available. So you could watch entertainment at home on TV, but all the Westerns, they were black and white. You had to go to the theater to maybe see entertainment on screen in color. It wasn't available on TV. 
Actually, that's why the Star Trek uniforms are so colorful, because TV was kind of new and they wanted to show off the colors a little bit. Yes. The NBC Peacock was a big draw because it was so colorful. Right. Didn't work so well when it was in black and white, but now it was in living color. But only on the big screen for a long time could you even see anything in color that looked like something you might see if you looked out the window. Exactly. And when color came, that was just the next step forward. I mean, we, we've talked about these steps forward that happened during the golden age of Hollywood in terms of the way movies were made. This was the next big step forward was bringing color into the picture and the way that it just popped on screen for people and was really vivid and enjoyable to see. Well, then the next thing that came beyond that, and this was this was toward the back end of the 40s and moving into the 50s, was the change in aspect ratio with the way that that started to change. So explain to some people, well, I know what you're talking about, but it, let's explain in basic term, what is an aspect ratio? Well, you often see this with, with televisions or with computers yeah. as well. You can, you can change your aspect ratio that you have in terms of what you see there. Four to three is a little bit more of that box setup, and you especially see... Go, go more basic. For I know people that aspect what, what letterbox, what. Explain a little bit what it is, and then the changes in it. That's what you see in terms of the picture. The picture on the screen. Right, the picture on the screen, and it's... It's how tall, how wide. Exactly. Yep, that four to three, four being the, the width three being the length, it, it, that's a more boxy one. That's basically what old TVs were before we started going high-def plasma LCD TVs. Think back in the 1990s when you had the tube TV, yep. and before that they were four by three. That was the aspect ratio. Remember when you'd watch a movie uh, on like some Fox, or it had to be you had to be like one of the serious movie channels, like the movie channel or Turner Classic Movies, and there would be those bars at the top and the bottom of the screen. Well, what are those bars for? It's eating up the picture. Actually, you're seeing more of the picture because if you had a aspect ratio of the movie screen, which was much, much wider, then you're missing pictures when you shoot out the whole thing on the whole screen. You had to cut off some of the edges so you get what was called a pan and scan. And you still see some commercials that have yeah. a portion of the screen that'll be taken up by something else because the commercial is is a little bit more cheaply done on a four to three aspect ratio. And sure. movies of the early day were four to three. You watch a movie from the 20s, 30s, even some from the 40s, you're going to see it in a four to three kind of ratio in a lot of cases. So you have a big screen, even a wide screen, you'd have the theater, you'd have the show in the very middle of the screen and you'd have bars on the left and right. So that, TVs nowadays think about when we started getting rid of all the tubes, they started getting a little wider, yep. didn't they? So the aspect ratio was changing. Yes. So 16 to 9 came along then, which is considerably wider. It's what you would deem widescreen with the way that it was made. And that's what you see on computers. That's what, that's what you see with movies is a 16 to 9 kind of ratio. Well, then things started to get really creative with the advent of Cinerama. Cinerama was really big, and it was a, a very, very... They still have one out in L.A. There's probably others around. Do there's, they? there's a Cinerama Bowl out in L.A. I I'm, think it's still open. I'm not surprised. And what they did with this was, it was, a according to the, to the video that I watched in, in prep for this, it was a 46-degree angle of view for the actual screen itself that you would watch the movie on. So it curved. It did. Kind of like an omni-theater. You, your peripheral vision would almost kick in. And they would, would wrap you, around you a little bit. And they would shoot the movie remarkably with three different lenses that would that would suit for that Cinerama setup. And they'd have three different films showing at the same time 
uh, three different uh, cameras showing the film at the same time to be able to make that wide angle on that wide screen possible with the different projectors that they would have. And they would shoot it with three different cameras. It was incredible, but very bulky yeah. with the way that they would do that. I wonder how that would work if you were like in the back row. Would that still work, the effect? Interesting. Um, I, I, I don't know. But I mean, going to the Omni Theater is another thing. That thing completely encompasses everybody. There really is no back row. You're just on the top row. Right. So then they then they came up with uh, apparently they came up with an eight to three aspect ratio. Then that came apparently how the West was won uh, incorporated that, but that was a little bit less practical too. In addition to Cinerama, but then a little bit simpler in terms of the way that it was shot. But along came CinemaScope, but that had an anamorphic lens that was put on the camera, and that allowed for that widescreen picture, which was so incredibly wide that you got a, an amazing depth of field. That came with that, and that was suddenly possible. And the the first movie that brought that brought CinemaScope to the forefront was The Robe. And after that, studios were just flocking to make CinemaScope possible with their movies. You watch a lot of old movies, you're going to see it be have CinemaScope across the front, and it would it, it was just a big be, sell point. It, yeah, it'd be, even if you didn't know what CinemaScope was, it's awesome. All right, how many people nowadays know what THX is? But they just know that right. preview at the beginning. Oh, it's got the. But what is THX? No idea, but I love it. And then things like Panavision and VistaVision came along as well. There, there were these remarkably wide angles that you were able to get on these films, which brought widescreen and brought all of its possibilities to the max as they got into the 50s and into the 60s. Made it easier to fool the people that you weren't actually in a theater. It was easier to pull you into it. That's right, which I'm getting to that that general idea here in a little bit later on when talking about this topic. But, but suddenly, there was a world of possibilities, literally a world that you could step into when you would go to the movies. And so, the Western, the epic, those really became big then in the 50s and 60s in terms of what was possible for what you could see. Huge, mass-produced productions could now be put on for these uh, for these movies because you got such a wide canvas I wonder that what, you could work with now. I've kind of got a question about maybe chicken and the egg. Do you think they thought, what would go well with this brand new technology? Let's do something vast and expansive. Did it come up with idea for Westerns just because somebody had a good idea for a Western or were Westerns brought about because of the technology that could allow something like Westerns and Epics? Which came first? It's like a chicken and the egg. Well, I don't know the answer to that question. Well, I would say that, that Westerns were around and they, they were still very present during the 40s sure. before these changes in terms of what you would so see on the screen When changed. you get into the 60s, like when this stuff started to come out and you had color and you had VistaVision and this is when you had the Western explosion. I mean, they were already yes. on TVs, but on the big screen, wasn't like every fourth movie a Western, all but that or a musical. And even those were, in a way, expansive. I mean, they had been around. You know, John John Wayne had been around oh, for sure. a time, and others who had helped bring the Western out. And and I mean, there were great Western movies that had come along before this. This allowed for the genre to have that much more of a boost in terms of what was capable because suddenly you've got the canvas of the West that is there for all to see on screen. With epics, you know, like thinking of the Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur, and then you get into the 60s with Lawrence of Arabia. Prior to that, The Bridge on the River Kwai. You've got these movies with these incredible landscapes and these incredible sets that suddenly can be set forth 
on the big screen in a way that had never been possible before, and it unlocked that capability suddenly, having that that aspect ratio be changed to that extent and with the kind of lenses that they could shoot these films with. In a, in a way, those of you that have gone to a modern 3D movie that's done correctly – um, and I haven't seen a lot of great examples of this. 3D isn't about things popping off the screen. It's about pulling you into the screen. The best example I can think of is when Avatar was done. It brought you into the screen. And that's comparatively what these aspect ratios were doing compared to what was done before. Uh, maybe nowadays we see a lot of this anyway, but it kind of, mm, I want to say it's underappreciated, but maybe with all the jump cuts, you don't get an opportunity to see some of this stuff, unless right. you're going to watch a movie that's made more the way they used to make them. That's something I kind of miss, was that with those types of cameras and with those lenses now, and with the change, with this latest step forward in terms of how films could be shot, I did appreciate how shots would get longer with cameras like that, because they kind of needed to be, with the way that they could kind of pan along in those kinds of of scenes and settings. They could pan along now with with what was happening, and... I kind of miss that. I, I kind of miss the way that they would they would stay on a scene longer in that regard. And it wouldn't just be the constant changes in camera that you see a lot these days. There was a little bit more depth that you could get out of it just by sticking with the shot for longer. Yeah, and, and, and understand, we're not knocking those that do, I think, very no, much. No. And, and in some cases, the MTV style of you know shaky cam and so forth works. And then I've seen examples. And it was innovative in its own way. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's a lot of things that happen nowadays where that's put in for no reason other than to put it in. Well, every other movie's doing this, so that's what we're going to do. No. You got to do what works for the story. Sometimes slow, sweeping, broad shots. Robert Zemeckis is really good for this. He'll use a lot of sweeping crane shots. It, you see the sets. You see the locations. You see it brings you in. You get a lay of the land. And you see what happens in that land that you've just got a lay of. It just, and so it works. That's one of his trademarks that he'll do. Even Spielberg can do things like that. He's got a beautiful cinematographer that does things like this. Good cinematography really opens it up. Now, I do want to talk about some other things that made the golden age of Hollywood golden. But, Dave, if you had to guess what brought about the demise of the golden age of Hollywood, what would you say it would be? Oh, heck, I don't know. If we're talking about the mid-60s, eh, there was a big shift in uh, the country anyway at that point. I, I don't know what I could say what, the, what brought about the demise was. I don't, think, I don't know if there's any one thing. I know that actors weren't thrilled with the studio system. That could have been part of it when they kind of started to push back. Um, it could be all the epics and the loss of the appetite. Like right now we're wondering when the bubble will burst for the superhero movies. A lot of the movies they were showing big time then started to go away. Did the appetites change? I don't know if there's any one magic bullet for this. Do you know of anything? I think there are a couple of things that combined together. Yeah, and it added up, added up to a perfect storm in that way. One, attendance was dropping big time. According to AmericanHistorama.org, attendance had dropped 70 Five percent at the theaters from 1946 until 1964. Why? Television. Color TV. Just like you said, color TV really helped bring about the end of the golden age of Hollywood. It, it didn't strike Hollywood down. I mean, there were still obviously not. No. There were still some super movies that came out in the 60s, and there were some super talents who were on the screen. I mean, I I, I love the 60s for a decade at the movies. 
there were there were some super talents who were coming up on the screen. But, but also a lot of what was coming out on the big screen, not everything, obviously, but some of the movies that came out were just dumb. They were. The, and, the and beach I'm, comedies, for example. Yes. The surf beach Really? Yes. Say what you want about Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello. That's awesome. But really... It's like a, however long those movies were. We'll call it an hour and a half. Just, you know, dumb jokes at a beach and, you know, eh. Plus, Elvis Presley couldn't draw people to the theaters all yeah, the time. He yeah. did that with some. Not not all the time he couldn't do that. But, um, yeah, so you, you got a bit more of that as they started to get more eclectic with the kinds of movies that were hitting the screen. Um, maybe losing their way a little bit in terms of the the same kind of production value and focus that had maybe been there previously. And because of television, yes, the options were growing in terms of what you could watch. I mean, sounds familiar. These sounds days, very doesn't it? familiar. Yes, <laughs> because of television, the options were changing, and so not as many people were going to the movies. So you had to really hit it out of the park. That's why, with the changes in aspect ratio and in terms of. Um, the, the multiple camera widescreen stuff that they did, that was another great step forward in terms of movie production. But it was maybe the last big one, and it did not keep people in the seats in the same way. I think if you would look at a movie that signaled the demise of the golden age of Hollywood, I think there's one movie. Is it Cleopatra? Yes. Cleopatra, I think... I wouldn't say this movie was the end of the golden age of Hollywood, but if there was any movie that was symbolic of the end of it, I, I don't think you, you'd you have to look much further than Cleopatra. And why, who? What went so wrong with why? Cleopatra? Because what, did, what went right with Cleopatra? Well, not terribly much. I mean, to watch it now, it's it's like, whoa, when you watch the movie nowadays, it's like, what a production this was. I mean, it was an incredible lavish. production, in- extremely lavish, um, and it just about bankrupted 20th Century Fox. That's how big it was. Well, if they would have got people to go see it, probably would have made their money back, but didn't happen. I mean, yes. you, you think about what was involved in the movie, Elizabeth Taylor, one of those names that comes along with Golden Age of Hollywood, but that turned out to be one of the big problems. Right, because she and Richard Burton had that affair that carried on and, and was in all the papers and stuff, and people were suddenly like, well, the gloss of the Golden Age of Hollywood is gone now with, with this reaching ahead and Cleopatra just bombing at the box office and, and having so much money being put into it. Well, bombing relative to the money that had been put into it. How about that for a warning shot to movies of the present day? Cleopatra is something that every a movie that every production company should never forget. Because that's that's the the scare of what could happen. Anybody that wins a lottery or becomes a pro athlete, take into heart the Cleopatra story. When you go and way spend beyond your means, and then you can't afford to keep it up, Cleopatra. And let's not let's also bring up another just a dynamic shift here: the way things are today versus the way things were with the movie stars. You mentioned uh, Taylor and Burton's affair getting front and center. That stuff happens every day now. But you got to remember, back in the day, yes, there wasn't social media. No, there wasn't stuff like that. But you also had a lot of investment from the studios. They were going to protect their properties, and you had a cleaner image. And you as had well. a cleaner image. I mean, whether it was you know, and it wasn't just with you know movie stars. I mean, JFK was sneaking girls into the White House. The press knew about it, but they weren't talking about it. It was a very different thing. If uh, starlets were out boozing it up the night before, or they, I mean, you name it, they were trying to whitewash things over and make right. sure that things were cool and squeaky clean. When the reality is, it was probably not all that different than what it is now. You just weren't hearing about it. 
Yeah, and the other thing that happened with Cleopatra that it, that it set forth. Boy, am I relieved that Lawrence of Arabia came before <laughs> Cleopatra was released. Because what would that budget have been if it would have been after? Oh boy, they would have struck. They would have struck it way down, and that's what I'm getting to. Epics really started to decline after that. Movies started to really take their budgets down in a big way. Not that they ended up producing poor movies after that. Not at all. Well, I mean, there were some did, tremendous movies them. that came, but this was kind of emblematic of the way that studios were starting to go the direction of, you know, we're going to put it out there, but maybe the thought and attention to detail was changing in a big way after that. And they started to to knock down production costs in a big way after that. Cleopatra was the one that burst the bubble in that way. And then after that, there started to be more films that came along that were less expensive, more character-driven that came along, and more independent films that started to come along. The 70s really oh, yeah. started to bring about the rise of the independent film in a big way and, and the grittier tones that came with that. And with movies that came along in the 60s that started to become more violent, a little bit more gritty, a little bit more real, um, th- that started to come. For instance, Bonnie and Clyde was a, a really big mile marker in terms of violence what year in the movie. 68? No. 66 or 67, 60, I believe. Okay. I'll find it. So here. late 60s, but it was a, you look at that compared to what was coming out in the early 60s, big, big, big difference. Unless you're looking at something small, but I mean, it was the, Bonnie and Clyde was a big movie the year it came out. It I'm was. talking about compare that to another big movie before the bubble burst. 1967. 67, okay. Yeah. Then you look at things like, I mean, even though we're past the golden age, you get into the 70s, you get into The Godfather. Look at the way The Godfather was made. And that was a Paramount movie. It was a big production movie. But look at the scale of that movie and the action and the cast and the story, the way the movie was made. Compare that to a movie that came out even just 10 years earlier, 1962. It is night and day. Yes, big time. The Golden Age was well and truly done then by that point. But what else made the Golden Age great? I, I think there are things that go beyond just the physical nature oh, of yeah. the movies that made the Golden Age great for starters. I think the stars were a huge part of that. The 90%. Stars, yes. they. There was a glamour about Hollywood that existed then that, that simply is not there now. I, I think there there is still a glamour to Hollywood now. But it wasn't the the glamour, the rich and famous kind of nature that there was back in that time where the golden age existed. Hollywood was truly its own world in that time. Yeah. Nowadays, I think people think of Hollywood being its own world in terms of people have a very different perception of the world in Hollywood. Yeah. So there, there was a big difference in that regard and in the way that the stars were viewed, I think, from that day to where the to where that viewing is now. And I and think that only, added to the aura. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, nowadays, back then, movie stars didn't do TV. They just didn't. I mean, if they, were a, if they had a strong stage background, maybe Olivier would do a film, and he would go to, you know, do a show on stage, and he'd go back to film and move back and forth. Peter O'Toole did that. Peter O'Toole did that. Yeah. But you'd have other stars that they were on the big screen, and that was it. You know, they didn't have the talk shows because like they do now. Because of the contractual obligations. Oh, yeah. So if you wanted to see Elizabeth Taylor, you had to go see her on the big screen. That was it. One of their big draws is the way stars were then versus now. They're very talented now, but they're craftsmanship. Back then, they just 
oozed charisma. They may not delve into their characters so much, and they didn't necessarily, I'm not saying that was the case with all of them, develop a fully rounded character. Good, like e- say, good example, Errol Flynn. Yeah. Definitely an example of that. Exactly. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis nowadays, well, now he's retired, but you know, he was one of the best known you know, character actor, not even character actor, method actor, that would disappear into his character big time. Back in the day, not to say that never happened, but they were. it was Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra, Elizabeth Taylor as so-and-so. It was Elizabeth Taylor oozing Elizabeth Taylor, which was oozing charisma and magnetism, and wow, to see her on the big screen pulled you in. And along with somebody else, it oozed a different kind of charisma and how they crackled together. That's not really the way it happens now. Maybe George Clooney, you know, maybe right. he's a kind of a throwback to that. You know, what I thought of in that regard, Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. I think is a great example of that because he brought a certain kind of character to the screen with the roles that he played. You, you were pretty you were... much the same role, but with different names. Right. You knew you were going to get a gruff kind of character who was maybe a little bit sealed off from others in terms of his emotions and the way that he goes about things. Yeah. And that's what you knew you were getting. And it was it was kind of pairing up people. They wouldn't necessarily disappear into these oh, roles. a lot of pairings. So happened. it really wasn't about the draw. It wasn't about the story. If you, if you want to take a look on YouTube at old movie trailers, and we'll do an episode someday about movie trailers coming up, I think. But We've already discussed trailers. Are you, are you thinking classic trailers? I'm or? thinking all trailers. But I'm talking, for this instance, go look at some movie fr- movie trailer from the 50s or 60s. What are they really promoting? It's not the story. The story is almost incidental. Oh, yeah, and there's a war on. But anyway, but in the middle of this war are this star and this star. And look how they clash and look yes. how they react. It was all about the movie stars. And the story was almost secondary. Didn't matter. It mattered who was on screen what was on screen, and the story was, oh, yeah, and there's Especially this other thing. Especially in the 30s and 40s. Oh, big time. That started to shift, and the story became much more important. But then again, things like Cleopatra, the story matter at all? Oh, no. It was about glamour shots. Now, for better or for worse, it broke the system. But that's what it was, and that's the way a lot of those movies were. Exactly. And because you had the charisma of the stars, it drew people in in that way because there was, there was that perception of Hollywood as being this this glamorous place with these glamorous people and the mu- the movies reflected that but not only that i think there was a a certain i'm not going to say it was it was totally innocence at the time because there was a different idea of of what was okay and not okay yep. in the movies at the time a very different type of view of that especially with the way censorship worked um, because they would censor for some things that we would look at today as really what you but, couldn't have even married couples in the same bed even if they were you couldn't have toilets right. flushing you couldn't have a lot of weird things but you but at, but then at the same time you got these movies because of that they were very friendly to the public that yeah. people could go watch even some of the the war epics of the time when they came around you got movies that people on a very widespread scale could go and see. And that's changed a lot in in the, those regards today because different people have different ideas of what's crude and what's not in movies today. And and you see that a lot. I mean, R-rated comedies are, are a big thing today. Um, back in the day. They didn't exist. It, no, they didn't exist. Well, and, and even, I've got to look it up, but the ratings board didn't come around until much, much later. There's a lot of those movies. They might be rated now. They might have gone back and retroactively rated movies. But even if they did, what would have been the peak? I mean, may, I mean, PG-13 tops? 
I mean, was there exactly. such a thing as an R rated? Maybe there were some, you know, some movies where people got killed. But even if you watch Hitchcock, the most violent of Hitchcock movies, you know, Psycho, R rated movie, yeah. But how hard R is it really? You know, I would if it came out today, PG thirteen tops. Right. It had changed a lot. Oh yeah. In that way, exactly. Yeah. So that it. So that feeds into what you're saying. There was an innocence back then. It does, and be, I think because of that innocence, it, it drew a very wide audience to the the screen because they felt like they could go, and they felt like they could go without wondering what exactly am I going to be getting into here with with the movie that's going to be on. And that brings me to maybe the biggest thing that existed in the golden age of Hollywood, and it's something that I think we can draw comparisons to with the movies that work today. With the golden age of Hollywood, between its stars and between and its stories that it had on the screen... And story to directors. And directors, exactly. There was, because of those things, there was a quality that drew people in that they really enjoyed. The stories were very well crafted with the way that they were thought out. Or they were just entertaining and fun with some of the movies that were on there because of the innocence that existed. And... You were truly being transported to another world. What industry succeeded during the Great Depression and succeeded greatly during the Great Depression? The movie industry. Why? Because people needed an escape from the world that was around them. A world that was full of poverty, that was full of losing their job, that was full of a really uncertain time. And in that uncertain time, what gave inspiration? What gave an escape? The movies provided that. During World War II, what provided an escape from the horrors of the war and thinking about that? The movies. During the 40s and 50s, what what provided inspiration and kind of a sign of the times thing that that people could go to and, and take in? The movies. Movies had a power to be able to transport into their world. And especially with the things that had happened in terms of technology along that time, There was a captivating sense to the movies of that day. People needed to be entertained. They could go watch Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing on their screen. And they could go and watch the musicals of the day and the wonderful, you know, whistling to it kind of tunes that they would have for it. They could go and watch these incredible stars. And even in some of the the quote-unquote grittier ones of the time, they could go and they could see them in a gripping, captivating kind of performance. And they knew they were going to to a completely different world. And really see something special. Exactly. They knew they were getting a performance, that they were getting a great story, and they were getting something that appealed to a mass audience in that way. It was the same kind of spectacle that had been given on the stage, and it was coming to the movie theaters in a way that that was just captivating an even bigger audience now with the way that they were able to see it on the screen for themselves. I think that quality in many ways started to change when movies got grittier. And and, and again, this, this is not a knock on movies that, that got grittier or more realistic because it, it was kind of the inevitable tone shift. That It was inevitable that that was going to happen because movies had to come up with new ideas and new things and, hey, let's get grittier, let's get more realistic. And as censorship changed, so did that. And it was more possible to do that. But there was that that bit of gloss that was lost, that that bit of, I don't know, that, that enjoyable tone that was lost from the golden age that made it golden because there was that shine. There was that, I know I'm going to a movie. I don't, I don't need a reflection of the, the realism that I get every day. I, I'm going to a movie to be entertained 
and to enjoy this and to have a, a really neat story told as well. But you know, I think you also have to think about the larger scope. And now that I want to get too dead, uh, too too heavy or anything, but I don't think it was. The, I don't think it's the the tail wagging the dog. I think a lot of things changed. I think as people have kind of marked. Uh, November 2nd, 1963, with the Kennedy assassination is the moment where America changed. You lost its innocence. You had Vietnam starting. You had uh, a counterculture that was really starting to develop. And movies reflected that. And movies reflected that. Now, movies had their own issues, and they changed on their own, but they also were a reflection of the time. Exactly. Things changed. Everything changed. To take a look at 1960 and the way things were, and you compare it to 10 years later, 1970, it's a whole different country. It's a whole different everything. And movies were a reflection of that. We as a people changed, and we continue to even now into the 2010s. Uh, and that's been every decade on. More cynical, yeah. more realistic, more things com- like that. More complex. I mean, if you, look, yes. if you look at, and complex isn't glossed over. Complex is gritty by its own definition. And so if you look at the way all movies pretty much were from the golden age back, and they only go back so far, everything was kind of glossed over. Everything was nice and neat and fine, and there wasn't any scandal. And if there was, it was, oh, and audiences were easily shocked. I mean, I brought up Psycho, for example. It's one of, looked at as one of the first slasher movies. It's pretty darn tame. But then again, you look at, say, 1980, go to Friday the 13th, pretty darn tame. Now you look at horror movies today, not so tame. I wonder what, 20 years from now, we might go back and look at Hostel or Saw and think, yeah, it's pretty tame. And consider that tame? If you oh, Friday boy. the 13th, a lot of people thought was pretty hardcore. Psycho at the time, people thought was pretty hardcore. You look back over enough time, action movies, Bruce Willis running on glass and Die Hard. Ooh, nowadays, it's, that's not so bad. You kind of get a little more complex, you get a little more maybe desensitized, maybe not be the right word, but as society shifts. No, I, shift, I think that's the I think that's a good word. Desensitized. Yeah. There's, there's people a, expect different now at the there's movies a as a result. A lot of things that have changed and it's just it just it just marks the times. But I think up till the sixties, society as a whole it changed, but not so seismically as it was going to in the mid sixties. Everyone thinks of sixties as the free love moment. That didn't happen till the end of the sixties. The, the early 60s, first half of the 60s, was almost very much like the 50s. Very, very conservative, but there was a radical shift. British Beatlemania came to town. TV was entering into every living room in the United States before, like it never had before. And color, too. You could start to see the world through your TV, things you couldn't do before. When did this episode become a Billy Joel song? Like I said, I didn't want to get too heavy, <laughs> but there's reasons but why it, the Golden Age came to an end. And that's... That's exactly spot on, Dave. And I think those we're seeing some more of those things continue to manifest today. I mean, we're just getting more realistic. We're getting more gritty. It feels like when I just it, got it the comes Billy to Joel reference, <laughs> British Beatle Mania. That's right. When you said that, I, I thought we didn't start the fire. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, I got you. So anyway, that's um, kind of what that song's about. Is right. The right. Times. Anyway, but we're we're seeing that same kind of change. <laughs> yeah, we're seeing that same kind of change of the times today. I mean, what what movies are people? are people looking to who are in mainstream media and mainstream Hollywood and saying, yeah, this is a movie you should go see the ones that are reflective of the times, the ones that are, that ask the tough questions in that way. And maybe that is necessary. Maybe that is possible, but it, but it does make me yearn for the days when there was also that I'm going to the movies to be entertained and to have an enjoyable time there. Maybe not to have this thrown in my face or that thrown in my face. There's going to be plenty of that. 
in in our in our modern present day. You know, that's why a movie like Baby Driver surprised me last year. Oh, yeah. It was like that had those those kinds of just go to be entertained qualities to it. And yet it what also came with it was some of the grittiness and some of the um, modern day things like language, violence, those kinds of things that, that you get a lot more of. But that's why when I turn on TCM and I watch those older films, it is like being transported back to a different time. And it's almost refreshing in that way because that was a time when going to the movies was going and being transported to another world. And you and it was appealing on a wide scale. And that's why this brings me to my final point on this. That's why I think when you draw comparisons to the to the present day, the golden age of Hollywood and what made it golden, I think explains a lot of why movies of this day are as popular as they are, the ones that are popular. And by that, I mean superhero movies. I mean adventure movies. I mean some of those action-adventure type ones, but especially superhero movies. I think, it, I think it explains why they are so big today because not only do you have the comic book appeal, but you get a very general mass appeal in a similar way to those movies that, that came in the golden age of Hollywood had, and they transport you to another world. And it's a world of possibility. And it's a world that reminds you of why movies became big in the first place. And it's no wonder that superhero movies are as big as they are today as a result. Think about that in the context, though, of where a lot of the talent today is going. It's kind of starting to shift away from the big screen and starting to really focus on the small screen. Streaming, prestige television. Presti- yep. Streaming television series also. And, I mean, for despite all the recent allegations, Kevin Spacey was one of the first to do it. He started getting into House of Cards. It was exclusively on Netflix. And at the time, you're like, What? Now it's the and that wasn't that long ago, and now it's become the norm. Things have really changed, and a lot of talent is going to the smaller screen because they're focused not so much on spectacle as much as well crafted, well put together stories, even of a limited nature. I mean, Stranger Things is a Netflix series that's doing fantastic things, and we're kind of getting away from movies a little bit, but that's kind of the point. Things kind of are getting away from movies a little bit. The entertainment is still there; it hasn't gone anywhere. It's just moved to a new location, so well-crafted and maybe a year in between seasons where it used to be just a summer off and that was it, maybe a break during the run, that was it. But the TV quality compared to even the 90s when they were doing that compared to what they're doing now, a year and a half between year, seasons of Game of Thrones, I mean, but wow, then you get to watch the next season and you know what the time was spent on doing. It is well-crafted visually, actors, performances across yep. the boards. So why what is movies missing out on? You've got this big gap in between series and then you get this short gap between Star Wars movies and people aren't interested. Yeah. From the society that'll binge watch 12 episodes in a row, you know, so there's Interesting, huh? It's an inter- just I mean, they're not throwing out any answers, just things to think about. And yet, if you flip on an old movie, there's still that appeal to it, and that's why I think that a movie like La La Land did so well because harken back. There is still a sense of wanting to harken back that does exist and is out there, so and and people still are are drawn to. So let's do let's wrap this up with something for the younger crowd that are listening. There's people that are listening that I remember that movie, and then there's some that have heard of that movie and I've never seen it. Let's stick to the golden age, so like mid '60s and back. If you were going to suggest something to somebody that's never really watched a movie prior to, let's say, the Spielberg era, just to start somewhere, 
what would you recommend? Try this movie. This, if you want to see what those movies were like, you know, you're gonna. There's no movie that's gonna be a perfect fit for, say, a millennial or younger. You know, you got to try something new by going back. Right. What would you give me an example of something you would suggest? To take in. Well, one that I would suggest, and I think when you watch it, you need to understand that this movie brought about a lot of new ideas when it came to shooting movies and the way that that was done, and was very innovative in its own way for storytelling, and that's Citizen Kane. I, I think people do need to give Citizen Kane a chance and at least watch it once, because it has such a renowned... A renowned... um. What's the best word? Renowned legacy yeah. that comes with it. It's on the top of a lot of critics' best movie ever made right. list. Why? Why? You've got to watch it to see why. When I watched it, I understood, hey, this was very, very innovative for its time in many ways with the way that it came along. Yeah, Orson Welles was was quite a guy, and he was... Um, very mag- yeah, magnetic. Yeah, um, and... Also enigmatic as yeah, well. Yeah, it was that too. So, uh, with all of those things, but he had some great ideas when it came to filmmaking and when it came to storytelling and all of those things. And you'll see them with Citizen Kane. You want to see the changes that were happening in Hollywood at the time? Citizen Kane is very reflective of that. So that's just one. I, I could name many, but that one came to mind right away. How about for you? I you know I can think of a couple of different ones. I would suggest something fun. Um, there's one from the mid '50s. It's actually a stage show that was adapted for the big screen but even the way it was shown it was very stage-like versus cinematic but it's well worth watching mr roberts it's a world war ii comedy yep henry fonda is in it this is jane fonda's dad and bridget fonda's granddad uh james cagney and uh, jack lemon are the three ones in it um it's it's set on a a, a army supply ship in the u.s navy during world war ii that's it's a comedy. It's fun. It's upbeat. It's got its moments of poignancy too, and it's got a good message to it. But it's very much a product of its day. It's, it, the movie was set ten years after World War II had finished, or the movie was made ten years after World War II was done. But it is set in the ending days of World War II. But it's a good comedy, and it's worth watching with some of the magnetism for some of those big stars. And Jack Lemmon was young at that point. And he had a really good career afterward to the 70s and the grumpy old men movies. And you can see him when he's a younger, you know, up to no good troublemaker youth. Right. One of my favorite Jack Lemmon ones is The Great Race. I I think he's hilarious in The Great Race because he's he's totally just off the cuff ridiculous in that movie and it's it's funny watching him in that one so checking out his ensign pulver character and mr roberts as well where i actually have it on dvd if you want i'll loan it to you um but you also have another one that's one of your all-time favorites for that day are you saying that to the general audience that you'll loan it to them because i've seen it and you've you've loaned it to me have i been loaned to mr roberts you have i forgot about yeah and i enjoyed it a lot okay uh there's one more i know that you love to death that you might want to bring up that's worth seeing well, well, there are many that I could think of. Um, Casablanca is another one. Yeah. I, I think if you if you want to see what what some of that almost noir esque film capability was in the forties and thirties, that's one to see. As well as the Maltese Falcon, that's that's another one too. If you want to see Humphrey Bogart at his best, um, if if epics are more of your style, 
it is long, but Gone with the Wind was an incredible production yeah. with the way that it was put on and the story. And you had Vivian Lee just as a firebrand there in that movie. I mean, she was unreal in that movie um, as the as the classic Scarlett O'Hara character. And then, of course, you have Clark Gable in there, too, uh, as, as Rhett Butler. I mean, they just – and the way that they go back and forth in that movie, it's just wild. Um I we've talked about him before when we when we talked about directors, but you've got to see a Hitchcock movie. You you really do have to see yeah. some of the ideas that he came up with when it came to making making a movie. I just showed uh, Vertigo to a friend of mine for the first time the that's other day, a good one. And, and that's a movie that I would highly recommend because not only is it a mind bender in terms of what happens on the screen. But when you read into the context behind Vertigo and the way that it reflected Hitchcock and some of his filmmaking tendencies as well as others' filmmaking tendencies, it just it just blows your mind. The tropes that are in that movie and some of the symbolism that's in that movie, it's like, wow. The because fact that people the, have put it in, in the Citizen Kane class of yeah. the greatest movie of all time. That's how good it is. But here's the funny part about it. Much like Shawshank, when Vertigo first came out, it bombed. It was a it waste did. of time. It's now considered Hitchcock's masterpiece. It is. Which means it had to be seen. Well, the movie, but I'll watch it anyway. Well, this is really good. People have come to appreciate it on their own merits. Forget the hype. They went and saw it on their own, and it really is something special. If you want to appreciate the suspense that he had, though, you, you have to see a movie like North by Northwest because yeah. I think that's like the epitome of his suspense thriller type movies. I mean, then there was the slasher horror stuff that he got into with Psycho, but if you want to see the, the peak of his thriller type of works north by northwest was it and it it set the tone for the bond movies in the future it did a a lot i have a friend the same friend who i just showed vertigo to he regards north by northwest in a higher vein than even some of the early bond movies like from russia with love that it was inspired a lot by and i I was going to suggest from russia with love it's the second bond movie sean connery it's at the very tail end of the golden age of hollywood but it most definitely is when you look at the Daniel Craig era now and some of the you know over-the-top special effects with Pierce Brosnan and Die Another Day, Bond now kind of harkens back to the past, but it's not quite what the 60s was. From Russia with Love is a pure spy movie. It's got some gadgetry to it, but not yes. really. It's, it's straight up the way those movies were made. And maybe nowadays, compared to what you see, that's eh, boring compared. I don't like as much. The best thing oh, I about, love it. The best thing about the Bond movies, any of them, is that they are products of their time. Yeah. And so if you watch a 60s Bond movie, if you watch Roger Moore in a 70s Bond movie, uh, Timothy Dalton in an 80s Bond movie, they are products of their time. They show largely the way things were at the point. So to get a better idea of the way movies were made and the way the 60s were, at least the early 60s, go watch a Bond movie from the past. And, there are and so- I think From Rush With Love is one of the best. Oh, yeah. it's I would, I would absolutely gets agree the credit, with that. But I think From Rush With Love is pretty darn good. It, it really got things rolling in a big way. Um, and it, whatever genre really appeals to you, you can find a movie that's really representative of that. Romantic comedies were were. Really fun in the 30s and 40s and 50s. If you want a musical, 
you've got your choice. You you've got so many different ones on the town. If you if you want some star appeal in there, on the town is the one that you can see. The sound of music. The sound of music when you get That's into the sixties. Absolutely, there are so many different musicals that you can choose from. If the West is your appeal, you've got grittier westerns as you started to get into the early sixties, and yet you've got the John Wayne westerns that are in there too, which really started to change in their tone over oh, time, yeah. and they they started to get more serious as well. Or you can get an exciting adventure like Western, like the Magnificent Seven that you that you dip into as well. The the epics. I mean, the, you've got so many different ones that you can choose from with the epics. If you like a, a historical epic and what that would bring, or even a biblical epic with the Ten Commandments, a lot, a lot of those, or Ben Hur. You've got your choices there. If you want more of a historic epic, here's a, here's a better example. Didn't they just do Ben Hur again last year? A new Ben Hur version about two years ago, and it did not do well no. at all. Why was that? Go watch the original Ben Hur and go, you know, Kirk Douglas, and go watch this remake, and then you're going to find Charlton Heston in the original Ben. I'm thinking Spartacus. You're yeah, right. you are Spartacus. I'm that's, I'm Spartacus. That's another one. That's yeah, a great epic. You're yep. right. You got me. So go watch I'm the original Spartacus. Watch the original Ben Hur. Watch the one that came out a few years ago, and you're going to see quickly maybe what the problem was with the new one and what they did so well with the first one. Right. Exactly. And then, and you got to go back to the tried and true that was in every daycare in America. I think was the Wizard of Oz. I yes. mean, it is absolutely a classic, colorful, late thirties. Yes, colorful, great story. Judy Garland just was a, a national phenomenon then because of that, and as a big result of that. Well, actually, if you drive through Grand Rapids, you see the mural, and you're like, "Well, what's the thing with the?" Th-? Go watch right. the movie. You know, that's where she's from. I mean, she was helped by the fact that she and Mickey Rooney were America's sweethearts at the time, which. It, if you want just some fun light movies, watch any one with the two of them. In yeah. it. I mean, there's there's some delightful ones and some great music in some of those too. I mean, yeah. Strike Up the Band has some awesome music in it and it has the two of them. And then, I, I mean, whatever you want to pick from in terms of what appeals to you. What appeals to me is incredible story, great acting, and, and visuals that are dazzling along with music. I mean, the music was just tremendous. And and you feel like you're being transported into the world. And that's why Lawrence of Arabia is is the king for me. I know that's what you were trying to get me to say there earlier. But I, wanted, I did want to give a, a big nod to so many of the other movies that made the Golden Age golden. Because of the appeal that they have. And that people need to really dig into. And, and dig into with a mindset of, yes, this was a different time. When this movie was made, but there's a lot to appreciate about this movie from this time. But that being said, and we've kind of talked about this before, but it needs to be restated here. If your idea of enjoying a movie is on your tiny iPhone in a parking lot somewhere and you'll pause it and then go back to life and then pick it up and that's how you watch movies, disregard what we've just said. This might not be for you. This, you know, watching a movie from the past, it's not an example in patience. It's a craftsmanship. It's a fine wine. If you like movies and you want to be entertained and you're willing to open your mind up to a black and white movie that maybe you've never seen one before, movies that are shot more like a stage musical than something with sweeps and jump cuts, if if you think the Transformers movies are the best movies you've ever seen, you know, maybe you could do yourself a favor and try something different. And that's what this is about. These are movies to be enjoyed and savored. It's a it's a twelve course meal. It's not a mixed movie. You know, this is not something for an iPhone. Sit this through is the overture. Sit through, sit through the, the overture. Watch yeah. the intermission. Enjoy this. Take a moment to just do what your parents told you to do. Would you just relax? Shut up. Sit down. 
and watch the show. <laughs> you will be. And there's a reason why they were successful in the first place. It's not gone. The magic has not disappeared. It's there if you give it a chance. I think that's a great note to end on. But do not wait for Fred Astaire to transform into a moving bus. No. Won't happen. You're going to be disappointed, but you're going to be dazzled in a totally different way. I still watch videos of him and Ginger dancing. Oh, my word. Even if you don't love them, you will appreciate them. I've seen Citizen Kane. I understand why it is on. This is the best movie ever made. I don't personally think it's the best movie ever made, but I appreciate why. So many. I personally, I think Shawshank's best movie I've ever seen. Um, and it's it, you will appreciate it, and you will understand it, and you will get it. Shawshank over Star Wars. I'm surprised. Yeah, but but it is it is a great movie. Oh, so yeah. I think that's a great place to stop. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. This extended edition of Rick and Nick Talk Flicks has been sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Great place to go see the modern day classics, and yet they're laced with pieces of what made the golden age of Hollywood. As golden as it truly was. I'm ask Joel Miss, Hoover. Ask Missy to show you some of the old posters up in the projection room. They go back a little yes. bit. Yes. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. Thanks for joining us today. As always, we will see you at the movies. <laughs>